My name's Travis Prue. I'm from Krogan, New York, in northern Lewis County, up in the Adirondacks. And I'm here to talk about the history and the contributions of a man named Theodore Baslin to the North Country, to the lumbering industry, as well as to, to the house that he built, which I have restored over the last two years. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Travis Prue is Vice Chancellor for Government Affairs and Marketing at the State University of New York at, at SUNY at their system administration in uh, Albany and has had a number of uh, jobs in, in state uh, government. But he is from Krogan, New York, and owns this historic house. Uh, tell us first about uh, Krogan, uh, Travis. Never been there. Yeah, Krogan, well, I'm surprised because Krogan is home to famous Krogan Baloney. I'll send you some, Bob. Um, <laughs> okay. the, so Krogan is a historic village. It's one of those neat North Country villages that has a lot of history where you have families who have been there, including my own, for you know, going on two centuries now. Um, it was largely settled in the early 1800s. It was actually known as French Settlement at the time because you had so many immigrants uh, coming from France. And mm -hmm. the the primary you know mode of of employment were was twofold. One, it was growing farming industry. You know, it's not an area as you know that's known for great soil, so it was very hard work. But they they removed the forests and turned it into to workable farmland. And you also had a vastly growing lumbering industry. Um, in fact, it was one of the, the, the western part of the Adirondacks was one of the major contributors to the lumber industry growth statewide and, and nationwide and throughout the early to mid-1800s. And so Krogan is this great village that's trapped in time a little bit physically. You drive through the village and you see a lot of old structures, but it's actually a town that endured a great deal. There were two fires that completely wiped out the mm. downtown. 1902 and again in 1912, the entire downtown strip completely burned. Um, in one of the fires, you had a loss of two children's lives. But it's one of those villages that kept rebuilding. And mm -hmm. when you drive through town today, it looks almost exactly as it did in 1913 when they would have would have rebuilt. And so it's one of those places where you have people who are now in their fifth, sixth, seventh generation. And one of the things I love about it is that people actually have been handing down the exact same skill sets of whatever they did, whether it was jewelry making, whether it's basket weaving, whether it's farming, whether it's running the local grocery store. Mm -hmm. You have generation after generation who have carried on these traditions and carried on these way of lives and it's one of the things that, you know, so, that I'm proudest of growing up there. It's a it's a small village. Um, I think about 525 residents currently, about 225 to 230 households. Um, so it's very small, no stoplight. Um, but it's, <laughs> there's a lot of history. Everyone knows each other. And it's just a really neat place to visit. If I could go back to the one of the fires, uh, wasn't it one especially tragic with the two children died that the firefighters thought they'd save them and then the fire rekindled and uh, they lost their water pressure or something like that and couldn't uh, fight the fire in the rest of the village? That's right. And, you know, of course, the, the infrastructure for fighting fires was completely different then. 
as uh, than it is today. And we, what happened is the, the town actually advanced in these really interesting ways between the first and the second fire. So, for instance, um, by the time that the, the, when the first fire happened, in fact, my, my house, the Baslin house, sits directly on Main Street. The fire went everywhere throughout the entire village, but it didn't hit this house. Just by luck, by happenstance, this house didn't burn. So it's the oldest structure on Main Street. Everything around it did. By the second fire, what had happened is Theodore Baslin had, in fact, erected a massive water tower behind the back of the house and constructed this whole concept of making sure that there was wet blankets and everything that could literally cover the entire property to keep it from burning. And so what you have is these two fires that really decimated um, decimated the village. At the time, you're talking about a half million dollars worth of devastation, which, of course, for the early 1900s would be astronomical, you know, comparably it would be astronomical today. Um, you're talking about dozens and dozens of buildings, the entire lifeblood. Um, you're talking about all the bars, you're talking about all the saloons, you're talking about all the restaurants, everything that kept the community intact and sustained this vast transient lumber industry at the time, including the loss of life. So there were two children, the Gruner children, um, that, that perished when, when their father's their father's bar and restaurant burned down, unfortunately. And and but again the, the community has been resilient, was resilient through this stuff and built back in a better way, in a smarter way, in a more responsive way. It's really a testament to what this community, the hardships that people at the time would have endured and the mm -hmm. kind of spirit um, that they still have to this day. And you mentioned that you and, and, and your family, I believe, own uh, the Baselin House or Baselin Mansion, perhaps. Uh, tell us about Theodore Baselin. Yeah, so... It, it, it kind of came about in this in this weird way. So, you know, growing up in a village like Krogan, this was the house. This was the house everyone wants. It's the house that has, you know, the wrought iron fence. And then you're a kid, you run down the wrought iron fence and you drag your hand, the fingers along the fence, and you think, oh, this house is cool. Wouldn't it be great to live there? And the, the house growing up um, had the original zinc lions that Theodore Baslin had brought over from one of his international travels that guarded the front door. And they were kind of terrifying. But every kid of every generation over the last 120, 130 years has these same memories with this same property because it's centrally located. It's where you walk when you go to the ice cream, to go to get ice cream. It's where you walk when you go past the post office, go to the post office. Growing up, it's the house you kind of always dream to and aspire to have. At least I did. And I remember it had, it had only been in two families for the first approximately 140 years of its, of its existence. Uh, you had the Baslins, who originally erected it as a grocery store in 1859 until Theodore's death. He was the second generation there in, in 1914. 19, uh, then what you have is the Spencer family, who lived there until 1996, three generations of Spencer families. The Spencers um, were, were Baslin's personal physician because he didn't have any children of his own and had, had inherited the house after his death. And then what happened in the 90s when I was a teenager is you had a series of, of sales where people really stripped it of a lot of its, its lore. So Baslin was a little bit of an eccentric character. He had, the house had about a dozen life-size statues 
throughout the yard. So you had Venus, mm-hmm. you had the archer, you had um, you had a life-size statue of one of his Labradors that he was particularly mm-hmm. fond of. Uh-huh. And what you had in the 90s is people came in from out of the area, stripped it of all of these these belongings, and sold it off, made huge profits, and then left. And so the house fell into disrepair. So over the last 20 years, though, it had been in the hands, about 15 years actually, but been in the hands of a lovely couple who had moved to the area and they were retiring and they were filling their dream. And unfortunately, um, the gentleman got very ill and for the last 10 years had really been unable to take care of it and, you know, keep up with it. And so the house had fallen into disrepair. And so over the last couple of years, every time I would, because I'm based in in Albany during the week and I go up each weekend because that's where where my family's from. That's where everybody is. And every weekend, I'd, I'd literally try to convince people to buy it. <laughs> it's like this is really? this is worth saving. The the porch was falling down. You could tell that the roof had not been replaced in forty to fifty years. Um, there was probably water damage. It hadn't even been painted in the last twenty five to thirty years. Um, completely overgrown, and and the house was at one of those points historically where it was it was well it was at a pivot moment where it could either be saved or if it went on much longer, it wouldn't be worth saving. And right. so I really tried everything for years to shame and to push people into buying it and fixing it up, and nobody would. They thought it was going to be this massive project, and, and they were right. And yes. so ultimately what happened, you know, I, a few years ago, recognized I was nearing the age of 40, and I'd always had this dream of buying a historic property, of restoring it, and determined if I was going to do it, it needed to be then. So I started looking more seriously at properties, and it's interesting because I, I called the realtor and asked if I could take a tour. And the first time I went through, I was like, no, I'm, I'm not doing this. This isn't, this isn't even worth saving. Um, it's not going to be that great, even if you redid it all. Really? And I spent a few months thinking about it, and I went back through a second time and really just trying to wipe clean um, all of the negative feelings I had about the house and and the disrepair that I thought it was in and and decided to take the leap. And me and the, the, the former owners reached an agreement and we actually closed on the property about two weeks before COVID hit. So this was, we closed on Valentine's Day in 2020. Um, really? And COVID started to shut everything down first, second week of March. And so I had gone into it with a five to seven year rehabbing plan. And suddenly I find my, found myself working remote with a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> and my stepfather, um, who's a carpenter, similarly, his work was shut down. They weren't allowed, their, um, construction had been halted mm-hmm. for most mm-hmm. of March and April. And so we just decided, okay, let's, we have the time, let's, dig into this. There's nothing else to do. There's nowhere else to go. <laughs> That's not wow. that we had any other plans. And we really tore into it. And so a five-year restoration, we turned around in about four to five months, rebuilding everything from, from the porch to the roof, to replacing windows, to sanding, re-sanding all the floors, taking everything back to its, its original its original intent. So that's a that's a long-winded overview. Yeah, well, that's but well, a couple of things uh, ask you about. I I've seen a, a television piece on the Basilin uh, Mansion under yeah. your uh, family's ownership. Your, yep. I mean, you own it with your your mom and your 
and her husband now or so i so i own it and they're the caretakers so they the three of us we didn't really bring in all that um much extra help for for at least most of the projects it was the three of us and we really dug in and it's nice now because it is a large property and my fam my mom and my stepfather live there they're the caretakers year round they have a separate you know a separate property that they like to stay at during the summer but it's it's a family home and that was always you know kind of the hope because it had always been a residence and of course when you talk about these old structures and you talk about these very large old mansions throughout the north country oftentimes they're turned into businesses because it's the practical thing to do they're turned into apartment mm -hmm. complexes mm -hmm. and if it was at all feasible i wanted this to remain a home and i wanted it to be a place where my family could all come together you know and have this kind of united united place and so that's that's what it's become do you have other family members i mean do you have children or anything like that I don't have children, but my brother has children, and they stay with us often. And, you know, for instance, last year was, was our first Christmas there, and it was great because the entire family, my brother, my sister, her husband, his children, you know, there's enough bedrooms that, that we all stayed there for Christmas week. We all stayed there for Thanksgiving week. It's, it, was, it was nice to have a place that could bring everyone together because, of course, I live, in, I live in Albany during the week. It's where my job is. And so when I go up, I stay at one place. My parents would be in another place. My brother would be over there. Sometimes schedules would come together. Sometimes they wouldn't. So to have a house that is able to bring people together and, and nurture that family dynamic where we can all work mm -hmm. from a common place, a base camp, um, has been a really unexpected but rewarding aspect of all of this. Let me circle back to Theodore Bazelin again. Born 1851, died in 1914, described as an American lumber magnet. He was born in France? Or? So he was born in France. He was like many immigrants for the North Country. You know, they come from the Alsace-Lorraine, what was known as the Alsace-Lorraine region, including my own um, ancestors around that same period. So his parents immigrated in the 1950s to Krogan, at that time, which would have been a, a more transient community where people come into town and then they immediately get a job um, farmed out to one of the area lumber operations or one of the area agriculture operations. So in the 1950s, when they arrived here, um, his parents actually didn't go in either of those most common directions. They started general store. When you look at my property head on, the left side was built in 1859 as Krogan's first general store. And so um, Baslin and his family got to work putting everything together. They had a farming operation in the back, you know, just small um, family, family run. And ultimately his, his father passed in 1962 when he would have been 10 or 11 years old. And so he and his mom really took on the responsibility of, of running this store. And, you, you know, we talk a lot about Theodore because of all of, all of the contributions mm -hmm. he made to the North Country and the political connections he had. But we also need to talk about his mom because his mom was one of the first women to run and manage her own business operation in, in the North Country at the time under what would have been extraordinarily challenging circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so as Theodore you know, entered his late teenage years. He went away to college. He, he got educated. He developed a very, very devout um, Catholic faith. And mm -hmm. he returned and 
had this enterprising mind. Unless you're from Krogan, he's not one of those names you often know, but he's in fact one of the most influential people to, to have ever lived in the North Country because he came back and he not only saw the potential of creating a massive lumber operation that ultimately went on to employ hundreds and hundreds of local workers, he also started the local railroads, he started local energy companies. Um, mm -hmm. He's someone who understood political connections. He's someone who came from really nothing and came, you know, grew up and spent most of his teenage life toiling away at this family-run business that, by all measures, was not making them rich. And he took all of that nothingness and turned it into this massive operation. You know, he became Lewis County's first millionaire, which, again, at the time, it, it would be an astronomical value compared to mm -hmm. uh, when you think about inflation. He's someone who worked at and had relationships at the highest level of politics at the time. Um, he was close friends with a series of governors, and ultimately in 1980 or in 1885, um, he's the, the the person who essentially established the Adirondack Park. He was named by then Governor mm -hmm. Hill as the first, very first commissioner of what would become the Adirondack Park Agency. You got to remember, this was before the Forever Wild. This was before the actual boundary lines. There had been this massive deforestation and overhunting of the Adirondacks that had happened throughout throughout the 1800s. And so there was a desire to protect it, but nobody really knew what that meant, right? Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't until it reached it. We're New Yorkers. Until it's a breaking point, we don't really <laughs> take the steps that need to be taken. So right, in 1885, right. the legislature set up this act for there to be three um, successive commissioners, and he was the first, and he, you know, from the North Country. Um, the other two um, who came later were, were from downstate, and he was appointed that position because of his personal relationship with, with Governor Hill. And he, 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 you have to remember, he was a lumber baron. He came into this with a very different idea than a lot of people, other people had in mind, and in fact, his controversies are very likely what created the Forever Wild Clause, because he went into the creation of the Adirondack Park with the idea of management and mitigation mm -hmm. and allowing the lumber industry to still harvest as, as much as, as they wanted to. Um, and, you know, people started to connect the dots. We didn't, there wasn't social media then, so it took a little bit longer, but people started to connect the dots that you have somebody who had admittedly done a lot, had done a lot of good, but there clearly wasn't entirely altruistic <laughs> intentions behind sure, his commissionership. Sure. And so, you know, it's it's interesting because the story goes, my, my great uncle Kenneth Prue actually wrote, um, wrote Theodore Baslin's biography and did very extensive research on how he ran his, his business enterprise. And the story goes, the boundaries, for instance, of how the Adirondack Park were created were, were not based necessarily on what actually made the most sense. They were based on how could Baslin actually keep competitors from getting a foothold in the lumber nice. industry. Uh -huh. And so his so during his commissionership, as I said, there were a lot of controversies and ultimately, fast forward, you had a backlash. You had people saying, Okay, we need to go further, we need to keep these types of, of intentions from, from from running the ship and it really triggered the Forever Wild Clause and um, the establishment of the park as we know it today as both 
a public and private um, mm. enterprise with boundaries. Let me uh, uh, fast forward, as you've said, up to the current day that you now own the Basilin Mansion. Uh, the restoration went qu- quicker, of all things, because of the um, the pandemic. Are you open? I mean, do people come and visit the Basilin Mansion now? <laughs> Well, you know, it's a, it's a private residence, but that doesn't stop people from knocking on the door and asking for a tour. Um, right. So it, it depends on it depends on my mood of each day, <laughs> how how open we are. But it sits right at the center of town. There's no way you can miss it. And I do try to open it up for public events, um, not the entire inside. Obviously, the upstairs we keep for for more personal matters. But as you know, COVID restrictions relax this year. We've had a, a series of public Public events where people come and listen to a local band play for a concert. We have, uh, we've had free book events, um, and you know that's how I view it as is is a private residence. But I recognize what an important part and centerpiece of the community it is, and I try to create at least um, an occasional openness around that, um, so other people can can experience it. Because again, you know, the funny thing when I was growing up. It had only been owned by two families, after all. Nobody mm-hmm. knew what the inside looked like. <laughs> Nobody had any concept right. of of what was behind these columns or, you know, what was behind that big porch. Um, and so it, it, it's only been recently that people have actually been able to uh, experience it and, uh, and see. And, you know, throughout at least my region of the North Country, there's there's not a strong there's not a strong belief in preservation. Um, when you mm-hmm. look around the Krogan area, um, you know, it's one of those areas where people build really beautiful properties. And if it requires taking down a 150 year old hotel, that's in perfectly fine condition to do that, they'll do it. Um, and it's one of the things that I find personally frustrating, um, is, is there's not a commitment to historic preservation. And so one of the things that I've tried to do with this is to make, help people realize that just because it's old doesn't mean that it's not fantastic, that it's not usable. Um, you know, you don't have to rid ourselves of the history just because you want a more practical layout or you want an open concept. Um, and so when you, that, that lack of commitment to historic preservation in, in at least my area of Lewis County, coupled with the fact that two fires wiped out the downtown, there's not many other places to look besides my property for what is actually an older architectural style. So, so it's been really important for me to preserve that and to make sure people see it and value it and love it as much as I do. I, I heard about you, as you probably know, from um, Cosby Gibson and Tom Staudel, who've okay. uh, been on the podcast before doing uh, various of, of their their folk music presentations. Yeah. And they either have done or they will do their Lumberjack show. They've, they've collected a whole uh, bunch of uh, songs that Lumberjacks uh, sang That's right. That's uh, during right. the 1800s. So have they been there or they're they still? Just, yeah, they just did an event. I love Tom and I love Cosby. And they came up and they put together this really interesting and informative show. And, of course, you've had them on many times, so you know the way that they weave the history into the music. And, you know, what's what's fascinating is I was, I was um, talking with Cosby before uh, the event itself. 
and what um, what I noted is that throughout my great uncle Kenny's biography of Theodore Baslin, there were lyrics that the lumber, lumberjacks used to sing, the men who worked for him, the you know the ditties that they used to do to get through the day or in, in the, at the lumber camps at night. And so I shared some of those with her, and it was interesting because some of them, of course, these are all these. It's not as though they were writing each song originally. Each 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 operation gets its own variation of mm-hmm. of the same songs, and so she they had actually had several of these songs just with different regions, different people talked about different stuff, and so it was it was wonderful to be able to have them come put on a concert for the community while we were having a, a street fair highlighting some of the, the local um, crafters and growers and producers that Krogan offers that day. We had them put on a concert where they were actually able to perform some of the songs that the Baslin's lumbermen would have would have sung um, at their camps back mm-hmm. in the day. What do you, did the, do you suppose the lumbermen thought of Baselin? I think it was a mixed bag. We always have to think about these things in retrospect. At the time, he was the most prodigious and probably the most generous employer in the area. By today's standards, um, he would probably be considered a monster. <laughs> but at the time, <laughs> he's someone people wanted to work for. He he employed hundreds of people at a time from at multiple lumber sites as well as his other other enterprise operations. And, you know, you have stories of people who, for instance, um, literally fell on one of the saws. People literally cut in half. Their family just had nothing after that. It's not as though there was a severance. It's not as though there was insurance. It's not as though there was some type of payout. There was there was just nothing. And so you have that on one side. On the other side, you have people, uh, stories of workers who left for greener pastures, and they came back to Baslin because they considered him more loyal and more generous in terms of pay. So it's a mixed bag. He, he opened his home several times throughout a year for, for, to host parties for all of his workers. You can tell when you're inside the house and the layout of the house that he was someone who thought about hosting large parties. And, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, the front fireplace in, in, in the parlor um, still has all the original tile on the floor, and there's all these little chips throughout it. And it's actually because his lumbermen would have came in for Christmas parties. They would have been wearing the spiked shoes at the time that would have been mm-hmm. required for, for balancing themselves and being safe as they were rolling logs and riding logs down the rivers. And those shoes chipped up the tile work. So he's someone who opened the door. There's also a story of when his wife, he married very late in life, a much younger woman. She ended up passing away soon after they were married. She was a very beloved uh, figure in the town. But the story goes that when she was um, for her wake and and funeral, which was held in the parlor, no one came. And he asked his his in how live in maid at the time why why no one from the town would have come and she told him that people um did not feel that he would welcome them into their house that he would have viewed them as as beneath coming into his house and so they didn't come and so he actually left the property and sent out the word please you are welcome please come pay respects to my wife and there was then a very large turnout so he's a it was a mixed bag at the time and it's a mixed bag now when he when he neared 
um, his where when he entered his later years after his wife's passing, he became uh, what appears to me to be very eccentric. He's someone who really doubled down um, in a severe way on his on his Catholic faith. Um, he started to make massive contributions, um, were both good and bad, um, to to buildings, to scholarships, um, etc. And when you know when he ultimately left this earth, um, he didn't really leave anything additional for the community. He had his team of Clydesdales shot and buried the day of his death. So he's someone who was a very complicated figure. There's a lot of good and there's also a lot of problematic parts of his parts of his history, but I think he's someone who at the very least was an ingenious, enterprising person who really held to his faith and, and did try to live a life according to that faith. Travis Prue is restoring the the Basilin Mansion in his native Krogan, New York, in Lewis County in the Adirondacks that at one point was the home of lumber baron Theodore Basilin. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.